day of the Triffids, when terror rained from the sky. The day of the Triffids, when the Earth orbits into a nightmare. When the solid world of everyday reality disintegrates and the whole population is driven by fear towards insanity. The day of the Triffids, when destruction closes in from every side. Pilot, is he blind too? It's going to be starvation, fire, pestilence. Anyone caught in the middle of it doesn't stand a chance. I think we ought to get out of here and go on to Spain. How can you know it's any better there? I don't. It doesn't seem to have any central nervous system. Then how does it move? All plants move. And they don't usually pull themselves out of the ground and chase you. spot long enough to get caught. And now you are saddled with a family. It might have its points. The day of the Triffids, when law and order are overwhelmed in an avalanche of terror. The 90th time you've done this. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Spine Crackers podcast. Uh, I, my name is Gabe. I'm one of your hosts for the evening. My name is Matt. I will also be joining you this evening. My name is Paul, and I'm also a host of this show. And my name a- is Guest, who has not been introduced yet. There you go. <laughs> uh, Challenger approaches. And so who is you, you may recognize if you are a true person of culture in the online book sphere. The voice that you just heard of our very special guest for the evening, who we are thrilled to have uh, join us and are very grateful for his time on his birthday, no less. That's it right, is yeah. Seth, the proprietor of Waste Mailing List, um, uh, who you may know from Instagram uh, and who has recently started a fantastic YouTube channel that you all owe it to yourselves to go check out. Seth, how are you doing? Well, first off, I mean, it is a pleasure to be here. Only the coolest people record podcasts on their birthdays. So that's how you know I've got a raging social life. And I am deeply sympathetic for anyone who considers my bookstagram a reference for culture. So um, <laughs> God bless anyone who that's the case for. It is a pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's you know, I really admire what you're doing on, on, on YouTube there, just because uh, as, as anyone who listens to this show knows, we uh, like long form book content. And I think that that specifically on YouTube is, is a niche that needs to be um, filled in more. And, and it's, I think it's, it's just important. I mean, I just get so, this is, I've done this rant a million times. I just get so, frust- I just get so frustrated when I see like, you know, a review of, uh, I don't know, you know, War and Peace. There's just some some book that demands a lot of, you know, uh, interpretation and is intricate. And it's, I checked the, the video time and it's like six minutes. I'm like, okay. 
There's a lot of Fantano style book reviews out there. And it's just <laughs> honestly, it's a cesspool. So please help. Look, I, I get the utility, you know, dwindling attention span, that whole yada, yada, yada. But um, at the same time, if you're going to take a massive work of, you know, reasonably broad scope, you need to give it the time it deserves, right? So I just figured there's only really a few big names in the YouTube space who are doing that sort of thing. Crispy is one I often reference. Guy's a mm -hmm. legend. Um, but, you know, if uh, I can provide a little extra mouthpiece so to speak in that particular platform i'm more than happy to do so so yeah well yeah. it feels like too like if if you read books you already have a pretty good attention span maybe so you probably enjoy a longer video too you know you would think but i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah snackable media and the war against it <laughs> Oh, snackable media. That is a cursed term. I'll be using yeah. it later. <laughs> it's a real one. It's a professionally used term in circles. I don't doubt it in the slightest. Yeah. Um, well, this evening, we are talking about uh, a bit of a change of, of, of tone for the show, maybe in a way, uh, just because as we were discussing a little bit off, off camera, we don't really, no one here really reads a lot of science fiction, uh, at least these days. Although Anymore, I, think, yeah. I think most of us did when we were younger. Uh, I, I remember, Seth, you mentioned on the um, Beyond the Zero podcast that you were on recently that uh, Wyndham, who is the author of the book we're reading tonight, The Day of the Triffids, um, was someone that you read when you were younger and have some fond memories about. It was uh, formative reading experiences was really sci-fi based. Um, some of the names that come to mind, uh, Madeline Lengel, John Wyndham, Nancy Farmer, a few of those names. I, and it's interesting because I don't read a lot of that sort of genre fiction stuff these days. But in saying that, there is also a certain malleability to these genre signifiers in the first place, right? Like they only have so much utility. You look at something like, which I referenced again off mic, Gravity's Rainbow, because I'm a one trick pony and I will always find a way to uh, reference Pinch in here. To a certain extent, you could call that science fiction. So, right. Yeah, that's probably a longer conversation, though. Yeah, that's a can of worms, the genre thing for sure. That's yeah, a we we on conversation. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We've had it too, you know, just like mm -hmm. the, you know, where where those lines get blurred and who who's been tagged with doing so, basically. Yeah. Who were you? Who did you read, Matt, when you were younger reading sci-fi? I was a big Arthur C. Clarke guy. That yeah, was my. Clark was huge, like Childhood's End and the full sweep of the Space Odyssey mm -hmm. books. Uh, but I, I mean, like I, I was saying, like it, a lot of it was also I was like undiscerning. Like I just was like, I'm like I'm I'm 13, 14. Like I'm just gonna read like. I don't know. I read not that these people are bad, but like Jose Philip Farmer, uh, uh, Pierce Anthony, Pierce Anthony, mm -hmm. I really liked Robert Jordan, obviously. And then like uh, a lot of Philip K. Dick and that kind of shit, too. You know, yeah. Paul, did you read a lot of science? You were you just read The Hobbit over and over. Again. I honestly <laughs> The Hobbit was like the first book I read, basically. No, I, I'm trying to think. And I think it was mostly fantasy. I was it wasn't really sci-fi until I read some Philip K. Dick later in like early high school, but I didn't really read a lot of sci-fi. I think I'm actually maybe a little different than you guys. I'm trying to get more into sci-fi now. Like read I have um a few series I just want to read. But uh you know, they're big chonkers and I just don't have the time right now. Yeah. Yeah, the the fantasy stuff especially uh lends itself to like series of 12 books that are like God, some of those books are long, dude. They're long. Yeah. Yeah, those are some of those Robert Jordan books, man, dude, dude, yeah, it's a commitment, man. Yeah, 
It's like uh, 12 to 14 books in that Wheel of Time series. Isn't yeah, it? I think I think something like 14. It's wild. Like, And they're all I like love, 800 to 1,000 pages. Well, that's exactly it. It's like, do I really want to commit to something where I'm going to have to get in 3,000 pages before I really like, feel like I've really sunk into it? You know, like there's only yeah. so much time I have on my hands. Exactly. I'm not emo in yeah. 13 in my room with time to kill. You know what I mean? Like, You I, don't know that. You don't know that. <laughs> yeah, I am I somewhere am. deep down. But we're, we're, em, we're, emo, we're emo in 33 in our rooms with lots of time to kill. <laughs> yeah. You can't see all my protests the hero CDs. They're just off camera here. <laughs> yes. Nice. Yes, exactly. Um, well, this the day of the Triffids is like um, it's part of. Would you say it's part of the? Is it the golden era? Because they have like the different designations like of sci-fi, kind of like they do with comic books too, a little bit. It's which is like which kind of developed around the same time. Like, uh, is this part of the golden era, the fifties, or? I, yeah, I I don't know when people sort of what the historical designations are. Obviously, this was sort of the. You know, uh, this book is very famous. It's a very well-known sci-fi novel, right? It, yeah, there, there was a, there was a film made out of it about ten years later in the '60s or so. Or so. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know about what golden age sci-fi. There's, there's, you know, there's all, that era of sort of. This was at the beginning, I suppose, of the uh, like atomic atomic era um, science fiction stories that that were produced rapidly. I I, I have a a little bit of a collection of some of those old trashy paperbacks yeah, that, I, that I love. Um, what what I'm reading on Wikipedia right now is like the, the golden age was apparently uh, I'm seeing 38 to 46 and also twenties uh, and thirties. And they, they're saying the fifties was more of a transitional period. The silver between, age. And then like the sixties and seventies is new wave science fiction. Okay. So right. Interesting. And that's what we were probably reading as kids more or less. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of sort of um, putting it into that designation of atomic based or post-atomic yes. um, uh, literature, because really, if you want to look at it, uh, the dropping of the atomic bomb was probably the most significant event of the 20th century. And it kind of represents a fracture point where everything is kind of in reference to before or after that. And you're going to see a lot of stuff that kind of lurks in the shadow of that bomb being dropped because this is what only six years after that right mm -hmm. and there's mm -hmm. very much that sort of cold war anxiety hanging over this book um, yeah i'm sure we'll get into shortly absolutely the bomb is even br briefly and obliquely mentioned mm -hmm. uh so yeah i mean I, as david lynch said it the bomb literally opened a rift into an alternate evil dimension <laughs> well it's kind of like it's kind of like a real life sci-fi moment the bomb right <laughs> Sort of like the Will Smith snap. Yeah, sort of like the Will Smith snap slap, right? Yeah. <laughs> Still world, keeping it topical. The world is Chris Rock, and yeah, okay, good. Oh, geez, no, these yeah. are definitely equivalent events: the dropping of the atomic bomb and Will Smith being slapped at the Oscars. Yes, they're they they're Jeez. as eye-opening to me, which is frustratingly pathetic, but. <laughs> <laughs> that there's only a thin veneer of society held together by barely anything at all and it collapses when one person acts <laughs> that's right well okay. so Wyndham himself served in world war ii for england and yeah. saw saw from what i understand i don't know the details of his biography but from what i understand saw relatively heavy action um the 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 whatever group he was with i i'm terrible with 
terms like this, military terms, but apparently it was one of the ones that saw a lot of uh, fighting at some important battles. So clearly his, his, you know, worldview would, would have been shaped by those experiences. Mm-hmm. Did he fight in World War II or World War One? World War II. Yeah. Okay. Cause I mean, Matt before Matt was over my house earlier today and we were discussing uh, actually Lord of the Rings when that was written, cause it was written three years after this book. And I was just trying to make some sort of connection between this and that, but it seems vastly different, but Tolkien I still think there's like a world uh, war two world war one, but I just still think there's like a po- Yeah. Like again, and Dune similarly, like, uh, like these things kind of, I don't think unreasonably being described as in reaction to this kind of completely world shifting event, but yeah, even, even, even a, a somewhat more maybe silly little story like this one is still tackling what are obviously some very like traumatic and like real themes and maybe even things that Wyndham was like trying to cope with through storytelling or something. I think that's super plausible. Yeah, go ahead, Seth. Well, I was just thinking, cause he was, I think one of his roles was like a fire watcher during the blitz. Right. And if yep. you even want to scale it back a few years before the atomic bomb, like that's the era of the V2. Right. And that mm-hmm. was, uh, an entirely sort of anxiety inducing period to live in in London because you've got these bombs that literally go up into orbit and then drop and you have no idea where they're going to drop and they explode before you even hear them coming right that probably living under that sort of condition under that um uh, trying to articulate the right word here but just experiencing that must have been something that really informed this sense of anxious dread that kind of suffuses this entire book yeah there's yeah like a new horror there's like a new horror dropped literally new- you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> like yeah new things to fear all the time now wonderful i, I also think it, it's interesting speaking of the various roles Wyndham himself occupied his first job for the for the government was actually as a censor for the Ministry of Information, which, I, which I think is fascinating, um, especially, you know, uh, uh, I read, an, I read a, you know, sort of an academic article about this book that made a, a, some interpretive hay out of the fact that 1984 was published two years, I think, or three years before this. And Wyndham himself acknowledged that as, as an influence on his work broadly, um, if not this book specifically. Hmm. So, Make of that what you will. But um, so maybe we should talk about the book itself a little bit. Uh, who's this is my pick, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so so the book, uh, I won't do a, a, a you know play by play of the of the plot here, but broadly it follows um, a man named Bill Mason, who uh, when we first meet him is waking up in a hospital bed. We don't know why he's there. Um, and we quickly find out that his eyes are covered over and he can't see. And this becomes very important to the text. Uh, and he quickly gets up, he gets up and sort of quickly realizes that the world around him has completely changed from when he was last awake. Uh, there are people, essentially everyone uh, that he encounters early on in the novel, everyone has gone blind. And we don't know why, um, although that does get explained and then explained again at the end, potentially, mm-hmm. that's something we'll talk about. Um, 
and it's it's a it's a it's a you know it's a disaster uh novel right it's a novel of sort of the end of the world paul you, you all won't be able to see this but paul has his as his background right now uh on zoom an image from the walking dead the first episode of the walking dead rick grimes getting up out of the hospital that's it's really like a almost identical scene to the opening of this book yeah and so the story just follows mason um and uh his eventual romantic interest um, Josella uh, trying to survive and encountering various groups of people with various different ideas about the best ways to survive. The other big wrinkle in all of this, of course, is the titular Triffids, um, which are a, a sort of experimental um, plant that yeah. There's the, that, that uh, have sort of been integrated into society peacefully. They're known to be dangerous. They have these long stingers that can kill you if they, if they uh, uh, make prolonged contact with you um, and they're aggressive, but they've been essentially, you know, harnessed. And importantly, importantly they're mobile. Yes. <laughs> they yes. can walk. They so, can yeah. uproot themselves and walk around. Um, Mason himself worked with the Triffids as a biologist um, that was his career before the end of the the end of the world, as it were. Um, and he worked for a pharmaceutical triffidologist, and he worked for a pharmaceutical company, basically too. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, and that's the the basic sort of conceit of the story. Um, we can get into more details of the plot as we go. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anything? Oh, how'd you guys uh, picture the triffids? Ooh, well, he gives a, a pretty question. he gives a pretty clear description fairly early on, mm -hmm. right? Like basically I, yeah. three legged giraffes, rather with like the the what um, Stranger Things. What's that little flowery headed thing in the first oh the, season? The, the demigorgon. That's the one. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. basically, I picture a three legged giraffe with a demigorgon head. That was my image, and he made that nice fairly clear. I think he did. From, I mean, his writing is very like blankety. I would say it's just like he kind of like. He, he works through every like description really well but even after he described them i still had an idea of what i thought of they were in my head so i was picturing the uh the smart bug from starship troopers mixed with a <laughs> with a with a tribble like a furry one and i just couldn't get that out of my head none of these are plants yeah, i know i know none of these are right. even close to plants that was my experience <laughs> i literally saw bug. The, oh. Like the brain bug? The brain bug, yeah, that sucks the, the brains out. I have oh, no so idea not, how so you got that So not the brain, brain bug. Because he had like one. a little stinger, you know? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 No, Seth, you're that not wrong. Paul sense, is admittedly. wrong. Yeah, I am wrong. <laughs> Your instincts are right. He's making it's, an error. It's out there. I think, I, uh... it's, I think it's a better... I think it's better anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I can't just, take that away from you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I uh, I don't know what I saw. I, I honestly, well, they're on the cover of the Kindle edition, even that I have. Ah. They've been rendered a ton in popular media. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and I watched the 1962 movie in preparation for this, and so I kind of, unfortunately, my imagination has been co-opted, and I only see those things. Yep. Although those things could have slither around, and I saw that these seemed to more like walk in an awkward way that became dread inducing which i kind of liked the you know mental image of they're very shambly they kind yeah. of like the way if i'm remembering how he <laughs> describes it right they like have the the because the try in the triffids is as seth already said the reference to the three-legged but 
So they kind of like plant one and then like lean forward and move the other two and then plant yeah. the middle one and then like move that way. Yeah. That's basically how I walk when I've been drinking. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, Your legs are weird pseudopods that sort of just kind of get you at some place. And, and then I'm the self-conscious other... about that. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I think is, is interesting and worth mentioning, at least at the top here, is, is that there is also a uh, essentially a third disaster that's ongoing throughout the book, which is this unknown, unnamed disease that starts sweeping through some of the communities that um, Bill finds himself in and um, just killing people re relatively swiftly. Um, yeah. And I think they it's never identified. There's a few uh, uh, ideas, but they all turn out to not be right. Yeah, this, or it's just like, who knows? This aspect of it was one of the things that really set it apart from other apocalypse fiction, because I've found in my albeit limited experience that with that sort of subgenre, it tends to get pretty samey if you read enough of them. But this is kind of interesting because it plays around this idea of the interaction of disasters. It sort of seeks to address the unpredictable and compounding ways that disasters can interact with one another. There's that rhetorical question of, you know, what's the worst that can happen, but it rarely accounts for the possibility of two or three of the worst things happening at the same time. And I thought yeah. like, okay, that's a nice added wrinkle to add a little depth and texture to this idea. That's very true. And I, I yeah. actually, I'm with you. Like initially I was like, oh, this is a fun bit of pulp, but like, I do think there is something there with that idea. And I agree that's still not uh, something that's explored often. Yeah, I, I had I, at first I had somewhat mixed feelings about it. I was like, "Wow, okay, we're just we're just throwing it all in the pot here, like layering <laughs> on layering kitchen on sink it. book." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it really did grow on me, largely for some of those reasons that Sethi just articulated. Because without is, the oh, go ahead. Well, it's just this is how that stuff happens in real life. Just look at the context we've got over here. We've got a raging pandemic with twenty five thousand cases a a day uh, emerging each day in Sydney. And we've also got floods as the result of horrific rain, two terrible things happening at the same time. And the government has no idea how to handle both at the same time, you know? So I guess it's not just an interesting idea. I think there's a thread of reality to be kind of drawn from it. Yeah, it's also, it's also just points to like a kind of realistic notion of how other civilizations have fallen, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, it makes me just think of like, what if Yellowstone exploded? and there was a tsunami is it that unrealistic or but I, I think that one thing this book does well is that it, it kind of points to how they could be all the disasters could be related to each other too is that like one could have made the next one happen or maybe it's bad luck but maybe the the disease was a was a product of one of the disasters maybe the triffids like release something or you know what made everyone blind there was something like a delayed response to the immunity or something so it becomes more oddly more realistic even after you realize it's such a pulp novel well there's go ahead ben. well there's like a conspiratorial element almost by the end where it's like all of these things were man-made basically is is the hint there it's like these are all retaliatory weapons being used now in response to an accident from before and then the triffids are like a fourth man-made kind of threat that is now on the loose that they didn't expect to be so capable of adapting to our other mistakes where we killed each other basically 
but this very much follows kind of in the uh, the lineage of the anxieties that came out of like we said earlier the atomic bomb blast right you watch something like that happen something so incomprehensible to anyone who had lived prior to that happening and all you could think is okay what the hell is going to be next you know biological weapons like i think at some point in the novel he has this sort of he lists off uh kind of a few things that people are worried about happening following the trifid so I'll see if we can dig it up here yeah and and we sh we should maybe um just note the the cause of the blindness um which goes through some changes as i alluded to uh, in the narrative but at first it's a it's described as like a essentially a freak meteor shower um that right. he describes early on in the novel as being like the most and, and of course he had this sense of the narrator uh, mason had this sense of bitterness because everyone was just talking to him in the hospital about oh my god it was so beautiful it was the most amazing FOMO. thing i've ever seen in my life he had major fomo yeah he had major um, fomo dude and then it turns out that everyone who saw it has gone blind um and of course he encounters other people in his travels that for whatever reason you know they were drunk and asleep and they couldn't get up or what you know whatever they also points for drunkenness <laughs> yeah 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 exactly uh this is a very this is a very pro drinking book uh unironically actually yeah kind of yes yeah. <laughs> i feel like half of bill's journeys throughout this book are just going from one bar and looking for another bar it's very yeah. British that way, it feels like. He's like, oh, thank God, another pub, fuck. A <laughs> like, yeah. Apocalyptic bar crawl. <laughs> <laughs> That's sick sounding a little bit. This predicted, um, what's the uh, Edgar Wright movie, The End of the World? Oh, uh, is that what it's called? I forget. The the end no, it's uh, The World's End. That's it. The World's End, thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah. Where you should just remix it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so then, but later by the end of the novel, and it's never confirmed, but by the end of the novel, Mason is speculating that it was like a, some sort of weapon or a satellite that had fallen out of orbit and, yeah. you know, released some chemical or some special type of light or something that, that was intended as like a, uh, you know, um, localized sort of weapon, but malfunctioned or whatever, and essentially affected the entire world, which I think really speaks to that sense of, you know, and which, by the way, is interesting, because satellites had not even gone into space at that time. Sputnik was like late 50s. I think Sputnik was like 58 or 57 or something. Mm -hmm. um, so really interesting kind of, uh, you know, prophetic idea there on Wyndham's part. But, but I, this speaks, I think, to some of the things that Seth was saying earlier about this sense of, of doom and oppression from yeah. all sides and, and, you know, the, the horrors of scientific advancement um, in the atomic era. Like the way I see it is um, at least from Wyndham's point of view, I think the means don't matter to him. I think it's entirely the ends that they produce. I found the line that I was thinking about, I think it's in chapter two and it says, from time to time, there would be a panicky flare-up of expostulation when reports circulated that as well as satellites with atomic heads, there were other things such as crop diseases, cattle diseases, radioactive dust, viruses, infections, not only of familiar kinds, but brand new sorts. Like it just goes on and on. It doesn't really matter what the thing is. It's just the fear of that unknown, that new, that it's kind of, this word is used very incorrectly a lot of times, but it's Lovecraftian in the sense of it's a terror and a horror. It's something that you can't 
quite articulate. Like I know people like to use it as a way to describe things with tentacles, but that's the, <laughs> the loosest form of Lovecraft out there. It's this, this fear of the thing that you can't quite see or can't quite visualize, but it completely envelops your psyche. And I think that's kind of the, the headspace from which he was working through this, this time period that he was living through, the 50s. So it's like, it's sort of like Paul and the Triffids because he couldn't describe them. <laughs> yes, I guess, yes. I mean, they were terrifying in my in my mind. <laughs> An unnameable horror, huh? Yeah. I'm pretty Giant sure the trees were <laughs> brain sucking. It's, I mean, it's scary. It worked. Lovecraftian in a way. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that this, this starts the whole, like, um, I don't know, kind of modern almost trend. Like, even, even a book, like, I can link this even to a book like Leviathan. Right. Because the Leviathan of the title seems to me to be a sort of subtler, mutated, even more unnameable version of this kind of initial horror that's that's bursting literally onto the scene uh, in World War Two, you know, and then all, all the cope and, and machinations to make that not seem like something that's imminent being themselves also a kind of horrific overgrowth that <laughs> so I don't know, you know, in that sense you know, the world is kind of a Lovecraftian horror of its own. <laughs> and I think that that's really what is, uh, you know, occupying Wyndham here. I think what he's, and clearly this is, you know, driven by his experiences in the war and, you know, England at, at, at points in the war was on the verge of just collapse, essentially, right? Yeah. And I think that he is deeply interested in, the, the realization that he had in World War II and that many other people you know, had that mo modernity is balanced on a knife edge. Modern life and society is a fragile thing that can be you know, blown over essentially with something as, obviously these are huge events, but at the end of the day, they're sort of small. He, early on in the book, he makes a big deal about like, I had never thought about sight being the most important thing to human civilization versus something like intelligence or whatever, some of the traditional answers. And so I just think that he's has this deep sense of the fragility of, of modern society and, you know, our role in um, through science, I think specifically, and we should probably talk about his attitudes to, to towards science throughout the book um, are always capable of, of just undoing relatively quickly. But it's a it's a prescient mindset to approach fiction from like, you know, he, he wrote this in the 50s. So what are we 70 years later, but you look at not to bring it back to this again, but to definitely bring it back to this again, the pandemic, like the just incredible societal unrest that we saw in response to that. Um, you could really map the way that people react to the combination of the triffids and the blindness onto what we've experienced over the last two and a half years, right? Like, I think there really is a constant here with respect to examining, all right, how much or rather how little will it take for everything to start to break down sort of house of cards style for lack of a more eloquent metaphor? Yeah, I mean, yeah, even just pointing to like the like COVID and even the war in Ukraine, like what if, what if those, what if they were both slightly worse, you know, just slightly worse? What if well, nuclear retaliation like, is one of the Ukrainian sort of conflicts feared, yeah. feared consequences. So, yeah. But I, I, 
I think that he also likes to talk about the issue of not only like the like societal structures breaking down and being fragile, but also like moral structures too. I feel like he talks a lot about issues of of looting and just like m- minor things that seem minor in this circumstance, but the main character Bill kind of struggles with his like altering morality. I think they're one in the same for him in a way, you know, like this is the, you know, there, there is a sort of fifties moralizing streak a little bit, right. There's like definitely an emphasis, like Bill finds a ersatz kind of family with a daughter and a wife. Like there, there, there are these sort of things that are, you know, potentially a little, a little bit more quaint nowadays, but um, yeah, I think they're the same thing to him basically. Well, it's, I mean, the human psyche goes through some pretty bizarre changes under the conditions of disaster, right? Like you could almost look at it as sort of a loss of identity. Um, You know, he's really interested in exploring the way which civilized behavior, even the concepts of the self can be eroded when survival becomes the core impulse to -to day-to-day life. And kind of to that end, he questions the utility of individualism because under these conditions, the individual elements that comprise a person are flattened and you simply become part of a societalist or survivalist colony. You know, your only really distinguishing feature here is are you sighted or are you blind? And how can we use you to achieve survival? You know, and I think from that, a sort of twisted moral calculus can develop. And, you know, he explores it through these different groups and factions as they develop. And what are their ideas as to how we can move forward from this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think Bill's characterization is really interesting that on that point that you just made, Seth, about sort of utility, Bill is kind of obsessed with just utility, like what's the best way to get through this? He has like those moments of, of moral qualms, and I think his his moral evolution or, or, or devolution, I guess, depending on your how you're looking at it, um, you know, starting out in the novel, he has, you know, compunction about you know, getting food when he needs it. And there's no one in the shop and, you know, everyone's just looting sort of wantonly, uh, but he's still, he leaves the money on the, uh, on the, yeah. on the, on the uh, uh, counter. But, but, and then of course, there's the sort of pivotal discussion with the, um, the first big group that him and Josella run into at the university who are sort of organizing a new society based around, um, essentially like a, a, a Nietzschean transfiguration of value where they're just, we got to throw out the entire previous system and like start from the beginning. And that's going to include things like, uh, you know, polygamy, we're going to have to make a bunch of babies. So forget all of your, uh, uh, you know, social mores about monogamy and whatnot. And that's a big struggle for uh, Bill, not so much for Gisela, which I think is really interesting. Uh, yeah, should probably talk about. But that. she wrote it. She herself wrote a book that would obviously lend itself to her perspective. I mean, and, and but Gisela, right? Gisela, just a little bit off the top, like Gisela, uh, she's another sighted person. She's like a young. She's like twenty five or, or something like that. Correct. She's uh, like just twenty, wasn't she? Doesn't really matter, but I oh, think she's she like younger, early twenties. Yeah. Early 20s, yeah, I thought so. Doesn't matter, anyway. Um, Yeah, and she's sort of um, being, she was taken captive by a blind guy who was using her as kind of like a seeing eye dog to take him to food. And uh, he kind of wanted a little bit more uh, after that. And uh, just as that was kind of going down, Bill 
the white knight bill he comes galloping <laughs> in he frees Gisela and he's like i'm a good guy come with me and then uh they they eventually the sight night sight night <laughs> <laughs> love it oh that's great oh um <laughs> uh yeah so so that's how they first meet anyway just to say that yes and she she was an author as matt uh referenced and she right. wrote a, what's the name of her book i forget the title of the book but it's it's like my one sexual of these, ad- adventure or something it's like that something like that yeah my sexual <laughs> it, it's literally something like my sexual awakening or something like yeah. that yeah it's, it's like very like titillating like shock value kind of book that got her this sort of almost unwanted fame for for this idea it was uh, i think the title is sex is my adventure sex yes. is my adventure yes, there you that's go. right yeah <laughs> a shocking but, 50s book yeah now this uh, the details of this are starting to fade on me but correct me if i'm wrong but the actual content of her book itself is pretty passe right like it's not as i recall it's just the title is racy but if you actually read it it's not particularly transgressive in any which way. We're not talking George Bataille here. Yes. No. no. It was the yeah. title was essentially clickbait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think that this 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 question of the the relationship between identity, because the other aspects of identity that get lost is like, doesn't matter what no one's a no one is a biologist anymore. No one's a like your job, your former job doesn't really matter. It's all just sort of about what can you do in this community now um which also relates to my picture behind me the walking dead and mo- and like majority of the influx of apocalyptic you know films or tv shows or books post this book but that, yeah. uh, it is just like a common trope now right you have the blank the page of, of a big explosion or a big disaster and then there's this grab bag of you know, alternative notions of structuring a society or ideologically, you know, kind of behaving that a bunch of people try. And it's like a big thought experiment, blank canvas that you can kind of show those things in microcosm. But I suppose the reason that tropes develop in the first place is there is kind of a universality that people can relate to, right? Like these, these preoccupations haven't left us. They've just, you know, been repackaged a little differently from time to time. Like so much of the pop culture that follows in the lineage of this book is pretty much instantly recognizable. The first one, and I I thought I was like, oh, maybe I'm just being sneaky. But when I was reading the scene in the beginning of um, Bill in the hospital, like shuffling through, can't find anyone. I was like, I'm getting some 28 Days Later vibes. Yep. And apparently the opening 100%. scene of 28 Days Later was inspired. Danny Boyle was inspired by oh. this novel and wanted to um, and wanted to emulate. So the scene with Killian Murphy walking through empty London was directly drawn from Danny Boyle's experiences reading this book. Okay, cool. It makes a ton of sense. Intuited that, yeah, that's interesting. I think some of those some of those descriptions are some of like those scenes early on when he's just kind of getting his bearings in the empty city are some of the most evocative for me uh, in the entire book. There's some there's some really great ones later as well, but I think he just does a really good job um, of of capturing that sort of space right where because the 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 sort of dominant thing that bill notices is just silence right because it's not like the you know 
in a lot of apocalyptic scenarios, people are sort of instantly become violent, instantly go to looting or whatever. And there is some of that later on. But because everyone's blind, everyone is just wandering around, like trying not to bump into things or fall off a cliff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that first chapter, I like it's that was amazing for overall. The only part I didn't like in that chapter was when he meets the doctor and the doctor like commits suicide out his at his office window immediately yeah immediately <laughs> only because like the the mauler in me was like what would that window break that easily it's like do you, could he really just jump out of there or who's yeah i guess who's that suicidal that quickly i don't know yeah yeah it was a little bit i, like, I guess it's it, possible it's interesting i mean it. it is interesting to think about because i mean there's there are other instances of suicide later in the book or or sort of yeah. assisted assisted suicide that i think are much more kind of you know plausible uh because there's 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 this also this interplay in the book between you know the people who think that uh a a solution is imminent there's a character towards the end who's has this deep and unfounded faith that the the americans are just going to come save (laughs) us yeah. Um, which I thought was a really interesting little that detail. That felt nice and cynical and about the war for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and then the people who are like, no, this is it's it's like this everywhere. And if there was any help coming, it would have already come. Um, and that there's that constant back and forth in the book as well. Yeah, there 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 is a the timeline I wasn't always clear on, like the sort of Nietzschean sort of Mormon polygamy cult thing let's you know go forth and multiply or whatever uh seemed to happen very soon like very soon after the the incident like we don't have all the information like i don't know why we're we're jumping to this so fast they they had that in place well before this happened they were just waiting for their excuse to get started (laughs) yeah this is our time that's some koresh motherfucker was like yes (laughs) yes here we go because there is is that like moment who is that elderly guy who's delivering that delivering that speech about like Dr. Vorlis, I think was Vorlis. his name. Beadley right. was Ev- the other leader of the group. Yeah. Vorlis, evil name. Uh <laughs> yeah. 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 Delivering this. He's basically delivering like the Doctor uh a uh, Doctor Strange love speech. Like he was like, mm-hmm. animals will be cultivated and slaughtered. <laughs> <laughs> Women will be chosen for their pulchritude and breathability. Yes. <laughs> like but he was like doing it in this like fancy sort of preacherly way. Yeah. Political, like almost like a politician too. They described him as like a good speaker and yeah. He's charismatic. charismatic. Yeah. You would be amazed what you can convince people of if you say big enough words and in a British accent. <laughs> yeah. God, I've been falling victim to it. Yeah. And especially if you can see and no one else can. <laughs> <laughs> That helps. Game changer. <laughs> well, I also I was also thinking about. I mean, it is you meant you referenced it a little bit already, Matt. But I, you know, Wyndham really does run through the gamut of mm-hmm. all of the different sort of you know ways in which society might restart and in under what sort of organizational structures. Obviously, all of them is an exaggeration, probably, but uh, many. Like we have the that that group that we've been talking about. There's another group that is much more militaristic towards the end of the book, um, yeah. and they essentially want to reintroduce um, like serfdom. And, yeah, and feudalist and, sort of yeah, structures. Like, yeah, uh, there's a there's a fundamentalist religious group that wants to restart start society along those lines. 
a bunch of Christian scientists who die and go like, we're going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially. But, but I think what's, what's maybe most interesting about all of this is that none of them work. They all fail. Right. Um, right. To, to varying degrees of, of, you know, like disaster. Yeah. And what is the, what would you describe the structure of the Isle of Wight spot then as, because that seems to be characterized as like the good one. Um, essentially, or like the least bad or whatever, or least wrong, you know, hashtag. But like, what? how would you describe that structure? Like, what was that? Anyone got anyone got a pithy thing to say about that? So that this is the one at the end, right? Where they're where they are headed after they ditch the militaristic guys. Yeah, there's a guy um, who's just like, you can be a feudal lord, but, you know, we're going to we're going to have this stupid organization based on feudalism meets like you know, utility, like British utilitarianism. And they're like, no, we're going to pick Isle of Wight. But like, what was the, what was the um, sell on that? Well, it seems to be, you know, a little bit more um, like democratically oriented. Like they just, there's this, we don't get a lot of detail, but there's talk of a council and talk right. of, you know, like people. It's like are, a republic or something. Kind people of. are, yeah. People are free to join and leave as they please. And, you know, sort of a, a you know, free association and so on and so forth. So, uh, like I said, there's not a ton of detail about it, but I think it's sort of like, you know, the vague kindlings of democracy again or something like that. Sure. Yeah. That's what I was kind of a practicality to it, right? It is an island. The Isle of Wight is an island, unless I'm greatly mistaken, right? So, I hope so. Potentially, you could kind of create some sort of physical barrier between you and aforementioned triffids, right? I mean, that's probably the most simplistic way of looking at the benefits of it. But I didn't get a clear sense of kind of the um, the democratic or political shape of the space. Because there was still that um, streak of like, yeah, everyone's free to go about their business. But like, do you have better business in town, which is still a kind of a it's still a pretty big threat to loom over somebody in terms of like a free choice. (laughs) I don't know. So, yeah. All the other ones failed, and that one even didn't strike me as fool. Is it just like anyway. the the lesser of many evils? Like it's it's the least shitty option, for lack of a you know better yeah. word. Yeah, I, I, I think I think Bill says something almost to that effect uh, when because at first when the guy comes because um, by by this point in the story, him and Gisela have reunited. They're separated for a large part portion of the story, um, and they've reunited at her friend's kind of family farm estate house. Um, out in the countryside and no one else wants to go really except bill um and i think he says something to the effect of like this is you know the best of a number of of you know less than ideal options yeah what 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 i mean i i I was trying to like parse what to take away from windham's running through of all these various structures and trying to suss out is there a political message here is this is this just like a doomer thing like these are all going to fail in the face of sort of you know humans uh, and this gets back to the conversation about his views on science i think um, you know like our our inability to understand the implications of what we've been engaged in scientifically because the triffids aren't going anywhere uh, as far as we can tell at the end of the book they're they're reproducing at rates that we can't can keep up with and they're developing you know rudiments of an intelligence um and, yeah and they learning. can communicate yeah yeah 
So well, I wasn't sure how to parcel that. Well, I don't know if he's necessarily interested in any one particular social structure and how it develops. I think he's interested in the interaction between systems, right? Like it's, all right, we have an interaction between various apocalypses, apocalypi, I don't know the plural for that <laughs> word. Someone jump in with that one. Apocalypse. Uh, there we go. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Ooh, vaguely dirty sounding. I like it. Um, <laughs> And then it's, you know, all these different ideas develop as to how we can manage that. I don't think he's necessarily espousing that any one of them is the best possible option. I think he's much more interested in seeing how these different groups will relate to one another and how the power struggles between faction A, faction B, faction C, etc. will kind of bounce off one another and exist in this framework of, you know, individualism versus um, mm -hmm. societal communalism is that the right word i'm reaching for here someone help me out here yeah no i think that's i think that's right i mean it's they're they're they're, they're sort of like a each one is sort of like a proto creation myth for a various type of of a society or possible creation myths and i think it's telling that at the end of the story they're you know gisella and bill are having a just a bit of a, a, a chill moment on on the hill and she's like should we because they, they have another a child at this point of their own and uh, along with the young girl that uh, Bill finds on the way. Um, Susan, I think is her name, right? Yep. Um, and she sort of suggests like, we should come up with a story to tell these kids about why the world is the way it is. And yeah. when, when they're grown up enough to understand and and I, I think that it's I, I wondered what you all made of that because I thought that was an important scene. Yeah, because like the, the idea was um, to not just leave that void sitting there uh, and them needing some some version of a, of a reason to keep going, like that there was a purpose to the destruction, I guess. But doesn't Bill just kind of leave her hanging? He's not super helpful in that moment. Well, he's very much like a pragmatist, right? He's, I don't yeah. think he's necessarily interested in the myths and the rhetoric that we use to kind of prop up what the hell happened to us as a society. I think he's more just interested in the practicalities of making it from A to B, so to speak. And I guess maybe that's kind of one of the push and pulls here is like, all right, what do we focus on? The you know, maintaining a story as to what happened to us or just simply trying to make it through the day alive, right? This idea of sort of history as a subjective construction. You see that all through post-war fiction um, and how societal rhetoric kind of colors what is culturally and communally accepted as the, um, the quote unquote objective, and I use that word very loosely, uh, kind of explanation for what we've experienced culturally. Does that make any sense? Yeah. 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 Um, I think he's, it, it, I, I think you're right. I feel like that the, maybe some of the stuff he saw in the war or whatever, he, it's more like a, a, a kind of pragmatist notion. I think he's pretty much disenchanted with a lot of, of the options here. Um, but at the same time, he's just kind of in awe of the fact that probably having gone through hell and just sort of going back to the extreme, almost like clownish normalcy of like 1950s <laughs> was like, it's astonishing to me that this snapped back to this kind of thing or whatever, uh, you know, and like 
maybe there's like a perverse hope in that. And that's kind of the sentiment I got towards the end was just like, you know, what is Josella's is like, this just goes on and on. That sucks. Yeah. And, but also she like, you know, snaps out of it and like, is like also maybe that's impressive and hopeful. And then it's just kind of man, man v. Triffids by the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> the fourth, the fourth category of novels from, <laughs> from middle school English. Yeah. <laughs> Did, yeah. Did you guys pick up a like a satirical streak in here? Did you find some kind of pitch black humor in just sort of the absurdity of this situation? Or is that just me? That's a good question. I I I, I don't know if satirical would be the right word. I would for me anyway, at least my experience, I'd like to hear more about what what jumped out to you in that connection. But I mean, I think that there's certainly a type of, you know, absurdism about some of the the situations and some of the kind of yeah. you know actions and, and some of the dialogue um like maybe absurdism is probably a, the more appropriate term here than satirical i just thought it's kind of it is a very unique rendition of the apocalypse and it's sort of these highly almost exaggerated stylized um characters who have very kind of vocal and colorful ideas for what the hell we're gonna build up from right it's just it it had kind of an interesting darkly comedic streak to it um not 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 oh expressly so but yeah, i don't know i just thought there was a bit of, a bit of humor written in there yeah were there were there i can kind of see that especially with like the rate in which they come up too like they, they they do appear to appear rather quickly like matt said earlier like even like, in the oh. i think i think it's in the first chapter where he goes out into like a courtyard and there's a guy who just like has oranges or something and everyone is already like acknowledging that this is basically their god i think it's the first chapter yeah that's early on <laughs> but it becomes like pretty relentlessly just like what about this idea what about this idea you know um so yeah, like I, two I, days in and then already it's sex cults. Yes. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I also think there's, I mean, just like a few specific scenes that jump out to me as, as really walking that line between just like melancholy oppression and comedic. Like there's this, there's the scene where there's the person who's like, like holding on to a can of paint like for their life because they think there's food in it um yeah, they can't see yeah. and then there's that scene like late later on in the book that really jumped out to me for what for whatever reason of this guy wheeling rolling a huge wheel of cheese down the road <laughs> i don't know if you remember that but that yeah. that made me laugh yeah yeah the the conceit of being blind and how debilitating that would be for a lot of people who have been sighted their whole lives to suddenly be struck blind did start to have more of a profound impact on me at first. I was like, that's funny, you know, interesting. You know, he, the guy, the other guy said that the Triffids could be having advantages if people were blind. And then there's now there's this ham fisted thing. Uh, but it did start to get a little creepier as an idea to me after a while thinking yeah. about it. I mean, I think maybe I'm stretching here a little bit, but I thought that I was trying to think of like, what is the, what is the point of them being all blind really? Mm -hmm. Like what, what, and I've been trying to think of it for like days now, but maybe it points to like his uh, Wyndham's like dissatisfaction with technology. And if no matter what, it doesn't have to be pe people going blind, but it's like we're suddenly in the dark if we go into an apocalyptic event. 
You know uh, yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, for me, the, the, I, I was thinking about this too, Paul, like why use the blindness as the major sort of driving device here? And I thought of, a, I, mean, I, I thought of a few things. I'd be curious to hear what other people think, but one is that I, I was relating it to like this whole notion of the fragility of civilization. It, it's also just a commentary on like the, our, our subjective, like critterly fragility. Like we lose one sense and we're just whoop, like helpless. You know what I mean? Um, for the most part. And I think that like Wyndham is just really honed in on this idea of all of this, all of this, right? Like our individual selfhoods, our bodily uh, health and safety and society itself, just constantly balancing on the edge of a cliff, like a car that's like halfway over. And you don't, you never know if the, if the wind blows too hard in one direction, it's just going to fall off. Yeah. And I think his uh his belief that technology is actually propelling us further over the edge and if 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 an apocalyptic event happens our reliance on technology will send us back deeper than like a past cataclysm because i mean our species has survived cataclysmic events but i feel like Wyndham just believes at this point in history when he wrote it, it was just like no we we could not survive one we're like we're po- too reliant well, on that note of reliance, is it possible that he believes, you know, the the more that we become reliant on technology, the more likely we are to suffer a cataclysm, yes. cataclysmic event as the result, like sort of, I know it's 50 years later, but literally think about Y2K, like, oh, our entire financial system is structured under, a, you know, a two base numeral <laughs> numeric scale that the second the clock turns over like oh shit everything's gonna fail right like that's a reliance on technology our nuclear codes are locked into that our financial systems our healthcare systems like it's sort of almost predating that by a factor of half a century yeah and everyone back i mean i was like nine years old or something but everyone was just like there was no doubt that if it happened we would be it would be the end of us (laughs) i think we should start a new hashtag for next year or is it what year is it? Twenty twenty one, right now? Yeah, it's so, twenty twenty two, bro. So for next year, is it twenty twenty two? Yes. Oh, I already missed it. Then I was going to say like uh, <laughs> I already missed it. <laughs> I already missed it. Joke over. Uh-huh. <laughs> you were saying this should be the one. <laughs> oh, I was going to say why two, why twenty twenty two? Okay. Why so serious? Like, why so serious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I do think this is a really good example, this Y2K example, because again, it's like the creation of the Triffids is essentially so we can have like a cheaper type of uh, oil, like, like, like plant oil, right? They, that was their big initial uh, sort of commercial um, application, right? Um, and I, we, we, we probably don't have time to get into it until the after the jump into the Patreon segment. But that second chapter with the history of, of how the Triffids were sort of um, developed, I thought was really weird and interesting. And I kind of want to talk about that at some point. That was um, one of my favorite parts. Yeah, no, me too. I agree. Uh, it was I at think- the time, but I actually thought that it needed more. I thought it was really, really odd narratively to have just one chapter be from that perspective. And it kind of threw me off for the entire, I was kind of waiting for another chapter like that. And it never really came. Well, it was kind of, it's a narrative necessity, right? Cause this is sci-fi with a very particular set of rules and conditions set upon the story. So he needed to essentially have the exposition dump relatively early on. Right. So it's, you know, 
the whole novel is almost structured as kind of an oral history of the Triffid apocalypse, right? Like the very last lines, mild spoiler, like this is where my story joins up with the rest. And if you want to read more, go into the, um, the textbook on this story or whatever the exact line says. Yeah. The history of the colony. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Um, so I think just from that perspective, it was just kind of a practical choice, right? He needed to establish the rules to his world fairly quickly. And if you're looking at this from sort of a, a historical perspective, if this was, you know, not a piece of fiction, but an actual historical document, then that would probably make sense to put that at the front half. Yeah, I just, it just like threw me off though. I think I was just like, as a reader, just like waiting for something more, some, some more exposition like that, or I, I, when I and after the second chapter, I was like, "Oh, are we going to switch? Or is it going to be like every other chapter? Like we're getting like the direct experience of Bill, and then something more grandiose from like a societal standpoint?" But it didn't really happen, so I was kind of thrown off. But I do agree; it was like it was needed, and it was actually a really good chapter. I really enjoyed it. It was weird. It was talking about like fish oil and triffid oil. Yeah. And- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's not it's not a, a, an unclunky narrative like the, he Wyndham is like we said before it's kind of a kitchen sink thing and he and, and he does need to draw those lines and and have these events sort of coincide in a way so that we're all like on the same page and like understand what's going on because it would be easy to not you're like okay they're blind and big plants like I need you to tell me how those two things coincide and why that's bad and blah 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 so you know <laughs> there is a bit of a a clunky takeoff but I actually think he lands it like fairly admirably. And I understand why this was like regarded highly. Yeah. Um, well, we're, we're running up on the hour here. Uh, so we may, and as, as always listeners, there is a lot more to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about the class dimensions of this book personally. Um, wow. Gabe, really? Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not. <laughs> I know. Believe it or not. Um, and I think that there's, there's, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that second chapter in more detail. Yeah, um, I held off because I, I want to talk about Coker as a character because he's a really interesting character. Uh, we didn't talk much about him. Um, so if you want to hear any of that, you'll have to subscribe to Spinecrackers Patreon at patreon.com slash spinecrackers for as little as two bones a month. You get the full episodes, access to the discord, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we will love you for life. And yeah right what else okay yeah. so that means we're moving into scrabble um, oh yeah we'll just scrabble first <laughs> don't start humming. i know <laughs> i always get the order i know wrong. you want to hum it john williams get the fuck out for a second Best song of all time, <laughs> yeah. I know. don't you dare tell john williams to ever get the fuck <laughs> no, out. no he anything. is well he is welcome a little bit later <laughs> um all right i got i have my word my word is uh and i don't even know how to pronounce it but it's i believe jim Kana or Gymkhana, G-Y-M-K-H-A-N-A. Um, and apparently it refers to, it's it's a kind of like a British colonial term. Um, so maybe some sort of mashup from Hindi or, or something, uh, but it's, refer, it's referred to a place of assembly uh, where oftentimes athletic events would, would occur, basically a stadium or, or like a sports club. Okay. Rock on. I, I love I don't, it. I, I don't have one. Matt knew every right. word of the book. Matt's huge galaxy brain genius. 
I, I, I just, that I just, I, a... I grokked it. I grokked the whole book and uh, the, my word is triffid and we know what it is. You're <laughs> muted for the next uh, 10 minutes. You missed the entire Punish. Uh, end of the episode. Punished right, Matt. Punish, punish Matt. You joke, but I was very close to choosing Triffid for my word as well. I was like, that's way too easy. Uh, the, the one I chose stopped me dead in my tracks, and you'll understand why in a second if you guys are fans of horror films. It was Cenobite. So here I am reading along, and all of a sudden Hellraiser jumps into the middle of the narrative, and I'm just like, what the hell is this? But as it turns out, the word Cenobite, C-E-N-O-B-I-T-E, is a member of a monastic community which also makes me reframe how I think those Hellraiser movies. But anyway. yeah, at least yeah. you want to rewatch Hellraiser now. Yeah, yeah I was like, oh. That's, so like a, that's so like a monk, some kind of monk or something, or a nun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you have Cenotaph, which is like a, a grave, right? Like a grave inscription? Yeah, I think Epitaph? that's right. Cenotaph? There's well, a there's Cenotaph, Ep- too. Oh. Let me look at of Hellraiser as like a... Maybe this will be my word. The Cenobites are like... <laughs> Yeah, it's a really change of my perspective. Like, they're sexual monks or pleasure monks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the oft-quoted phrase is explores from the furthest reaches of experience, right? Like, right. they're mm-hmm. just kind of pure pain and pleasure sort of melded together in a melting pot and left to curdle, so to speak. Well, actually, here's, so here's, Cen- here's Cenotaph. Uh, this will be my word. It's not in the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a word deep that we learned this. Episode. It's just a word we organically brought up in discussion. <laughs> I thought uh, you were muted. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm free. C e n o t a p h, a monument to someone buried elsewhere, especially one commemorating people who died in a war. Ah, so it's an, it's an so empty like tomb. The, the, the monument of the forgotten soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tomb yeah. of the yeah. unknown soldier. Uh, yes. Does every country have one of those? Because we've got one in Canada. Probably. We've got one in Australia. I know that. I'm like, sure that, yeah, something something that serves that function, probably. A lot of question marks in those bodies. Yeah. Everybody got one. <laughs> Skeletons in the closet, baby. <laughs> what? Wait, what are you saying now? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Here, All right, Paul, what's your word? Mine is not as cool as either of those words, but it's, it's miscellany. I haven't... I. You probably have heard it before, you guys, but I have not. That's a good one. <laughs> a group or collection of different items, a mixture. It's just the just, noun form of miscellaneous. Yeah, yeah, and I like, I don't know. I don't think I've read it before, and I was just like, that's a good word. Kind of rolls off the tongue, too. But it also kind of sounds like John Delaney, so I wish I, ch- I had a backup. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, is a, it is a great word. Uh, all right, well. Seth, we need your we need your baritone. Yeah, come in here. <laughs> oh, I couldn't figure out which one you were doing there. Yeah, right, and now do it. Yeah, okay. Yes. Are we are we on fifteen different Perfect. keys right now? <laughs> no, no. Part of the charm. That was it's Beach Boys level, dude. We're good. <laughs> Our barbershop uh, quartet is coming along nicely. Yes. Only, a, only I think only a couple more of these and we'll be ready for prime time. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So this is the segment. If you aren't aware, we literally just read another book, which means we get to talk about Harry Potter, which is all we wanted to do in the first place. The only book we actually honest. like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. This book has a lot of characters, but I think as we discussed, there's probably only three of them that we really get enough characterization of to warrant a house assignment 
Uh, and then there are the obvious Slytherins, the uh, the militaristic fascist guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the rapey Ivan. guy. Ivan. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So let's start with uh, who should we start with? Bill. All right. Bill Mason. Start at the top. Hard Ravenclaw. Okay. Go. Ooh, explain. Interesting. Uh, well, he's just like, he. he's a total academic, right? That was kind of like, that's the easiest one that I reach for when I think about the house designations uh, in my head. So I, I just, in my head, I had kind of automatically lumped him in as a, um, as a ra- Ravenclaw. Like what, what are the qualities of that one? Intelligence, knowledge, curiosity, planning ahead, yeah, curiosity. curiosity. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. Planning ahead. That's a good one. Cause Bill is very, very planning plan oriented. Yeah. yeah. So he was a hard Ravenclaw to me. Okay. That was, that was actually pretty persuasive. Cause I was actually I for me too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I, I, I felt like Bill had a weird, like sort of streak of um, selfishness in him throughout the novel as well in parts. Like, like we talked a little bit about his moral development and there's a lot of times where he like talks himself out of helping people because it's like, oh, there's no point. I'm just prolonging suffering or, or, or you know, whatever. Um, and, and I was trying to sort of think about where, what, what that would be evidence for in terms of a house assignment. I feel um, like that's even, that's Ravenclaw though, too. Like him deliberating. rationalism. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's just rationalizing every interaction. All right, I'm sold. Yeah. I'm, going, I'm going bad Ravenclaw. Yeah, we called him a pragmatist too. Dark Ravenclaw. I'm I kind of think. Brave Ravenclaw. Wow. Yeah, I think he's he's got the he's comprised of mostly a sort of chaotic neutral Ravenclaw. <laughs> I'm going to put D&D stuff in here too. It. But then also astrology stuff because he's also Gryffindor rising. <laughs> or he'll do some brave brave shit uh afterwards. Um, I'm definitely linking to this episode on my Tinder profile. This is gonna make me look so cool. You're chaotic, <laughs> oh, yeah. you're a chaotic neutral Ravenclaw with Gryffindor rising. Believe me, it yeah. works. That'll get Ladies a type of person. It. Yeah. That'll, that will get a specific that type will get of person, a certain type sure. of person. That's all I can say. Yeah. All right. I, I'll buy that, Matt. Um all right, let's do uh Gisella. Gisella Mason, nay Platon. <laughs> Gryffindor. Gryffindor. Hmm. Okay. Explain yourself. I think she's just been doing her the whole time, but in a way that still like takes into consideration through like her shows of empathy or whatever, like other people. Um, she even is even her description of her own like cowardice and stuff seems to me to be pretty much just someone like self-interrogating and trying to be in touch with themselves and do what's right in self-crit. A, yeah, self-crit. Yeah, do a self-crit. Uh, I'm just going to call her basically just a Ravenclaw, or a, a, a Gryffindor. I counter. Hit it. Hit Hufflepuff. Me with it. Oh, right. boy. Um, so me being, you know, the academic that I am, I did a very thorough Google search of the qualities of each Harry Potter house because, <laughs> yeah. you know, preparation is key for this sort of thing. Indeed. It, it says that the main values of Hufflepuff are hard work, patience, loyalty, and fair play. And I feel like patience and loyalty are two characters that kind of, two characteristics, I should say, that I saw 
in her like for one just waiting around for because the good chunk of the book she and bill get separated but she you know she stays true to him this entire time right she's faithful yeah exactly exactly and she's loyal to the people that she's staying with on their little um their little farm commune what was the name of that place not trinchem that was a questionable one i think shin something right Yeah. yeah exactly so in my head i had her pegged as a hufflepuff also just I have this idea, it's unwritten in the books, but I feel like the Hufflepuffs really get down after dark. And you know, her <laughs> the whole reason she's cited in the first place is because she just got way too messed up the night before the uh the big green that's true. strike, right? So that's where I'm placing her. The 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 Hufflepuffs, you know, they're loyal. And they also stay on it, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're like band kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Famously horny. Famously horny, literally. They've been working mouthpieces all day. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> actually, I'm churning is the name of the place, by the way. I just. Yeah. That. I'll, I'll actually, I, I think Hufflepuff too, but I'm going to still do Gryffindor Rising again because <laughs> it's allowed. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sold on Hufflepuff. Uh, I think in terms of the, the the loyalty and you know her just kind of being yeah being a bit like sort of a rock you know a rock in 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 their relationship and her relationship with her friends. Um, I kind of we'll maybe talk about this in the Patreon segment, but I, I wanted to talk about your feelings about Gisela because I was reading a lot of Goodreads reviews about this book, and there was a lot of stuff about Wyndham's treatment of women, which we haven't talked about. Um, th- thus far, so put that in our, our back pockets as well, I suppose. What do you say, Paul, about Gisela? Well, I was going to actually say initially Gryffindor, just because she wrote that controversial book. Um, yeah, that's what. So I'm a little torn now. That was like the that was like the one event or one big thing in her but life that she did that was like if we're op- brave of her to to do that and title it that way. If we're operating on the assumption that Hufflepuffs are horny, it is a horny book. <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, yeah so i'm kind of do i'm more of like a hufflepuff gryffindor rising yeah me. to use a math yes. term yes yeah. use it yeah fair enough um Huffle, she's a hufflepuff we'll Huffle. that way sure should we talk about we haven't we didn't talk about coker really at all i think he was the other one that we mentioned maybe justifying a a, a, a placement but we haven't discussed him uh, he can be a bonus character all right so later. we'll do coker yeah. uh, later as a bonus yeah. after we talk about him a little bit all right that means there's only one thing left to do score it's not first it was not first oh I th- who i think matt That's, got it first I mean, I think I think... matt, uh, which means you got to go paul Oh my God. Are you kidding me? On my screen, I was clearly ahead of him. But, yeah, no, but I, no. I, I, audio, I heard Matt first. Okay. That's bullshit. But um, <laughs> it's not. I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to rate this book, honestly. Uh, I guess we didn't really talk about the writing style too much, but I really like, love Wyndham's writing. Like, I, I think I mentioned earlier that, like, he, he kind of, I keep using this word blanket, but he kind of just covers like everything you're thinking and every, aspect and his sentence structure is just like crisp and the the use of adjectives and everything just like hits me hard and i just love it i could just like read anything he writes um and i think just in terms of a post-apocalyptic story i think that it's really unique and odd and it it just brings up a lot of like unique ideas in a in a in a realm that isn't entirely unique anymore in 2021. Um, 2022. 
Is it 2023? Are you serious? Like, I'm really. <laughs> Are you I'm joking, dude? You're I'm not even kidding. You must be fucking. No. It's the us. year 2022. I'm getting really old or something. I don't know. It has been now for a minute. Yep. Um, it's been going on way too long for you. <laughs> so in 20, so now in, in 2050, it's just like weird to talk about this book. Um, no. So I don't know. I'm going to give it a uh, a 3.75. Nice. Solid okay. rating. Matt, that means you got to go next. I get to go last. Well, yeah. Seth can go last, but I'll go before that. Uh, yeah, so my, my mine's a little more, mine's less than Paul's, uh, but I just kind of like, it, uh, you know, at per usual upon discussion of the book, yeah, I'm like, I kind of appreciate it more. Think about its, its you know, date of publication and just sort of like, yeah, a lot of the out, just out and out weirdness of this type of story that, as we mentioned before, even in a somewhat exhausted genre, uh, has a has a take I'd not actually seen, which kind of surprised me to like realize in during the discussion. Yeah, I, in the Goodreads sense, it gets a three for me. I like it. Right? Isn't that what it says when you click on it? It's just like I liked it. I liked yeah. the book quite a bit. Um, it so was flat a flat three, three point zero. Just a 3.02 if you want. Uh, but just a uh, a very solid little story um, with a lot in there if you wanted to dig. And um, yeah, as Paul said, very like plotted, like very a lot of plot, like a lot of elements happening in sequence in a story. Uh, yeah, I think... I, I think it's deservedly famous. I see why it was. And uh, I'll read some more Wyndham for sure. Nice. Seth, you want to go last or you want to go second to last? Dealer's choice. Whatever. Dealer's choice. Um, look, I'll give it to you now. I'm like a flat three yeah. right in the middle, right? Yeah. Um, Twins. It's one of the it's one of those things where it's just like capital p plot which that's more of a me thing than a Wyndham thing uh that it tends to not be the type of book i gravitate toward um but in saying that when you kind of look at it in the historical and cultural context of the era i think it's interesting to think about particularly in reference to other works that kind of play on similar anxieties like unsurprisingly that i'm going to reference now gravity's rainbow <laughs> yeah. um similar post-war terrors which i think are an interesting and prescient space to explore and i like i quite liked the idea of interacting disaster events and how people essentially come to terms with that happening so yeah i i liked it for sure. Kind of three on the nose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm in the same area as, as you two. I think, you know, I, uh, I, I, I was, I was trying to compare this to the Kraken wakes, which is the other Wyndham that I've read. And that's, you know, not helpful for the listeners because that we're not, haven't talked about it and they haven't read it, but I, I, I think, <laughs> I think I liked that one slightly more than this one. Um, but, uh, 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 agree with everything that's been said. Like I, this, the, the, fame that this book has and its relevance to the history of this genre is apparent um in terms of its 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 influence it's you know sort of uh, some of the tropes that get picked up from walking dead to you know 28 days later obviously right so i think that that it, it is 
a, a work that is worth reading for anyone who's interested in the sci-fi genre, specifically apocalypse novels, more more specifically, um, and anyone who's interested just in the history of of where some of these ideas came from, and even for being the sort of, um, you know, if not the origin, one of the most influential books in that sort of, you know, type of novel, it still is very. Um, fresh in terms of like a lot of the ideas that are in here and the approaches are still you know interesting to me in reading them and I think add add in the historical context add in Wyndham's experiences in World War II and you have something that I think is as Matt said maybe uh more there than it initially appears so especially oh sorry get going. No, go ahead oh I was just saying like especially what is probably the most superficially laughable element which is just like big killer plants yeah that's actually what makes it kind of, I don't know. That's the stuff that actually separates it from other things in a way that's like genuinely interesting. Which we also didn't really talk about the environmental aspects. Of the, like, I want to know if this book is eco-fash. That's my question. All right, you save that shit. I know, I'm saving it, I'm saving it. So anyway, uh, I'm, at the, I'm at a 3.1. So just a little bit, a little hair, hair above. Wow, I guess my score is bonkers, 3.75. I, mean, I think I'm giving it more like a historical and odd credit than you. Maybe just like you freaking out already about your number. <laughs> no, I'm I'm maybe three point five. We've made him self-conscious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. We don't. You don't. No one has to explain themselves here, Paul. This is a safe space. Well, then I'm not going to explain myself. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah, uh, Gryffindor for Paul. All right. Well, <laughs> if if um, you want to hear the rest of the discussion, stick around for the Patreon segment. Patreon.com/slash/spinecrackers. YouTube. Instagram, Twitter, etc. Seth, where can the people find you? Remind them, Plug shout it. it out. Plug it. Basically, waste mailing list on all platforms. So Instagram, uh, Twitter is just waste mailing because they've got character limits and waste mailing lists on YouTube. Um, that's kind of the three main places that I traffic right now. Nice. What's the, can I ask, what's the next YouTube video you're going to be working on? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? I am currently throwing one together for Mircea Cartarescu's Blinding. Ah, I just bought it recently. There it's you go. unreal. I'm about halfway through it. It is about as far away from this book as it can be, but it is truly something else. Highly recommended. <laughs> fantastic. Cool. Um, all right. Well, Seth, thanks so much for your time. Uh, this was a fantastic discussion. We really appreciate it. Um, yeah pleasure and a privilege to yeah. be here can't wait to do this again yeah absolutely awesome. all right everybody take thank it you easy. loyal audience goodbye bye bye